Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our Senior Analyst, Pulitzer Prize Finalist, John Brennan. And I'm pleased to report that as of Thursday morning, I am finally fully dried off after getting caught in a downpour at Tuesday's Phillies-Dodgers game. (laughs) My Phillies were riding high. They'd won eight straight. They'd taken over first place in the NL East from your Mets, John. So I decided to go to a live ball game for the first time in the COVID era. And in the middle of the fourth inning, the skies opened up. I got completely soaked. Didn't feel like waiting out a two-hour rain delay, so I got soaked all over again as I ran to my car, (laughs) and I got home and watched the bullpen get knocked around and the Phillies lose. Was this just some random bad luck in terms of when I chose to make my 2021 Citizens Bank Park debut? Or was this karma, John, for me sending you a three brooms emoji at the conclusion of the Phil's sweep of the Mets Sunday? Uh, Yeah, Uh, Eric, you were not at all in the classic Barry Sanders act like you've been there before mode. Uh, (laughs) And the baseball gods were clearly not amused. Uh, The back to back to back home runs to open the ninth inning versus the Phillies on Sunday when Mm. the Mets were down five nothing should have been a hint that there's a little bit of life left in this old Mets boy. Uh, So you had to be punished for your impudence. And now uh, by the time you wake up bright early on Friday morning, the Phillies might be in third place. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. They could be, uh, or at least I guess, could they, could they actually be in third or could they be tied with the Mets? Do the Mets uh, play a doubleheader? No, they they could be in third. Yeah. Okay. So the Mets, the Mets must have a doubleheader double header, today. Yes. Okay. That they always play doubleheaders. When does, when, does, <laughs> when does the Mets not play a doubleheader? <laughs> yeah. It's just been nothing but rainouts and delays and for both teams uh, going on this week. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's funny. A week ago, heading into the Mets series, I was saying, I'm just glad my team is playing meaningful baseball in August. And then, uh, and then you sweep and you're up two, and uh, suddenly you're and starting half, to think yeah. a little bigger. Yeah. Two and well, it was, I think two and a half on the Mets and two on the Braves, yeah. maybe okay. something like that. But then uh, suddenly after two losses and the, the Braves catching up, uh, you know, you're not just satisfied to be watching meaningful August games. You're sort of believing sort of not look, the Phillies and Mets play uh, one more series this year against each other in mid September. <laughs> and I'll tell you this much. If the Phil's sweep, I will send you three broom emojis again. Uh, I, I didn't get soaked because of karma. I got soaked because I didn't bring an umbrella. So uh, unless you bribed my weather app to provide insufficient information, I see no connection between the broom emojis and the misfortune that followed. All right, just uh, go with that, Eric. Sure, why not? <laughs> I will. All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 155 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 154 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. Old episodes of Gamble On are the absolute perfect thing to listen to, by the way, if you're waiting out a rain delay. Ah, very nice. Nice tie-in. And uh, coming up a little bit later in the show, I'm going to be joined by Monmouth Park Racetrack Chairman and CEO Dennis Drazen, who last joined us way back in Season 1 of Gamble On in 2018. There's a lot happening in the horse racing world, especially in New Jersey. So we'll ask Dennis about riding crops, fixed odds, COVID recovery, and more. But first, it's been a frustratingly not-at-all dog days of August busy week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. It's been a very busy news week in the state of New York, uh, but the story the mainstream news outlets are covering isn't our main story this week. Although Governor Cuomo's resignation could maybe have some impact on legal gambling in the state. Uh, But our top story this week is that the New York Gaming Commission has revealed the list of bids for a mobile sports betting license, and there were six applications. And I'll preface this by saying I still don't totally get what a platform provider is as compared to an operator, but there will ultimately be at least two platform providers and at least four operators in the state. The bid getting the most attention is from Betfair Interactive, the parent company of FanDuel, and it's in partnership with Bally's, BetMGM, and get this, DraftKings, uh, as well as the Yankees, Bills, Sabres, and an MLS team. 
Then there's a bid from Camby in partnership with the apparel e-commerce company Fanatics and Penn Sports Interactive, which means Penn National and Barstool. Then there's a second Camby bid in partnership with Caesars, Resorts World, PointsBet, Rush Street, and WinBet. Confused yet? Uh, there are also solo bids from FoxBet, Bet365, and The Score, although The Score is also owned by Penn National. Uh, oral presentations from the bidders will come as soon as September 1st, and potential bid winners will be notified by December 6th. John, any guess who's going to win here? Uh, are we going to end up with every major online sports book finding a way to operate in New York? And what do you make of FanDuel and DraftKings teaming up? Is this a preview of DraftDuel? Uh, DraftDuel. That's my dream. <laughs> yeah, it's coming. I don't think this is it, though. Um, I believe you're correct in terms of Cuomo's resignation, though, having significance. Cuomo made it very clear uh, months ago. He pictured companies like DraftKings and FanDuel, which, if I recall correctly, even specifically mentioned as operators in a 50 percent or better to open tax rate deal. Uh, he had plenty of influence, and it's hard to believe he wouldn't have put his thumb on a scale with a gaming commission sorted out bids mm-hmm. now without Cuomo while bets are off you know replacement <laughs> governor Kathy Hochul uh, takes office in about 10 days uh, the first woman ever to be governor of New York which would be a great topic for a different podcast especially given the abhorrent track record of male governors <laughs> major candidates and attorneys general in New York over the past 15 or 20 years uh, anyway she did not have uh, many footprints in terms of gambling issues when I dug around a week earlier after I smelled coup in the air that is the despised Cuomo He's like a star ball player who, you know, once he lands in trouble, finds out what management really thought of him. <laughs> and we found out and found it big. So now Hochul's from the Buffalo area, which doesn't hurt the mega bid and the Sabres and all that and the Bills. But I think the real impact from her ascendancy to governorship is that she may lobby for a billion dollar taxpayer giveaway for a new stadium for the Bills. Because, I mean, what NFL team has any money in the bank anyway? So a little bit of a different topic in sports business, but that's where I think her influence is going to be bigger than this. Uh, Finally, I'm not sure that the seemingly also ran bidders are done if they're willing to go over, say, 60 percent as a tax rate, which could be suicidal financially. But, yeah, the whole points process for evaluating bids on this, it makes figure skating results seem like the very picture of objectivity. (laughs) I mean, all the bidders should score very high marks on the technical side. There's not they all have they all can do what New York wants them to do. Um, But now you get an extra point for every extra tax rate point you offer. Uh, so the best hope for New York consumers, I think, is a tax rate of, say, 55 percent is the winner and more than four sports operators are willing to hold their nose and pony up. You get a little competition that way. Uh, now, New York might as well accept all comers at that price, although I think there's a clause that says you you can offer at a higher tax rate based on this many competitors. Like um, in New Hampshire, DraftKings got a monopoly because they went full Monty on 50 percent as long as they had no competition. That's not going to happen in New York, but, you know, and with the lottery running things there, um, that was purely in New Hampshire, just maximize the tax revenue play as opposed to let's give consumers lots of choices play. Uh, Here in New York, it's possible it's the same way, but I think there's just too many people uh, to be a monopoly or even that close. So, again, there's a hope that uh, more than four sports books wind up uh, in New York uh, consumers' laps. Yeah, I mean, with the way these bids are coming in with all these sports books and companies teaming up, it feels like we're going to be a lot further from a, nop- a monopoly than uh, we, we initially expected. Yeah, I mean, we knew from the start it wasn't going to be a flat out monopoly like New Hampshire. We thought it might be similar to Connecticut, where betters will probably have three sports books to choose from, and that's it. Um, it looked, uh, you know, at several weeks ago, maybe only about four or so would make the cut in New York. But now that we're seeing these bids, um, you know, it's also unclear to me in terms of how many skins each winning winning bid can get. But, you know, like if that Betfair super bid is a winner and clearly it will be with with all the, those power players behind it, uh, they're, they're, they're going to get something there. You know, that might be four online sports books right there, uh, including the three biggest ones, FanDuel, DraftKings, and BetMGM. Um, New York is certainly not going to be as wide open as New Jersey. We, we won't end up with 20 sports books, but maybe eight or 10, possibly, if they're all willing to, to pay that much. Um, you know, they have to pay the one-time fee of $25 million to the state, and then that 
probably something over 50% tax rate you were talking about. But then you do that, you get to operate in New York. I don't know if there's going to be really a, a, a flat out cap on the number of operators the way that it seems to be shaping up. Um, here's a key sentence from Matt Rybaltowski on Sports Handle. He wrote, once the commission awards contracts to a minimum of two platform providers and a minimum of four operators, in accordance with the statutory mandate, the commission may award additional contracts at its discretion. So even when this initial process is over, it's not over. More sports books could maybe follow. I don't know. Um, other than a few of the smaller sports books like, you know, Bet America, Bet Fred, those guys aren't represented anywhere. It seems like all the big ones are represented and most, if not all, will end up available to New Yorkers. I, I, I think that if, if I'm reading these sort of conglomerate bids correctly, it, it seems like we could end up with betters in New York having a whole bunch of options when it's all said and done. Yeah, you know, while I'm pointing out that in, in New York, uh, sort of like New Hampshire, the focus is completely on how much dough we can collect right. from betters. That's that's what New York cares about. But in in that effort, it may well happen that they they accept six or eight or nine competitors mm -hmm. because they want to max out the amount of money they make. So while they're not doing it as a consumer friendly concept, uh, in the end, if you're a consumer, who cares? As long as you get the maximum amount of competition and you get better uh, inducements to sign up and mm -hmm. better promotions and all that, you know, you'll take it. So they may not be doing it from a consumer uh, focus, but I think it may wind up being okay for New Yorkers after all. Yeah. And, and I just want to touch quickly on the, uh, the, the draft duel of it all. Um, <laughs> I, I guess Behind the scenes, FanDuel and DraftKings are not the bitter enemies that we tend to make them out to be. Um, now, now, maybe the execs behind those companies hated each other back in 2014, 2015, as they were going to war via TV commercials. But as time has gone on, they're finding themselves fighting on the same side. They're teaming up to oppose the compact in Florida and try and get a ballot initiative going there. More on Florida in a bit. But um, it's clear that they've realized they can get more accomplished working together than working against each other. Well, and in this environment, in the expanding, you know, U.S. legal and regulated gambling uh, industry world, anybody might buy anybody. So if you're going to be mad at somebody, they might be your teammate the next day. So be <laughs> careful what you wish for. Yep. All right. Well, on that note, that leads right into story number two of anybody buying anybody uh, in terms mm -hmm. of major gambling brands teaming up. Uh, DraftKings got the news week started for us before 8 a.m. Monday by announcing it was buying Golden Nugget Online Casino for $1.56 billion in an all-stock deal. We've said many times on this podcast that the real money is not in online sports betting, but rather in online casino. And Golden Nugget has been one of the online casino revenue leaders in New Jersey for years. Whether this deal was also a move by DraftKings to score some points that might help it in the New York mobile betting sweepstakes is unclear. Uh, one benefit for DraftKings is access to the Golden Nugget online database of 5.5 million users. One point of uncertainty is whether, because of the ownership overlap between Golden Nugget and the Houston Rockets, DraftKings is at any risk of not being able to take sports bets on Rockets games, although my guess is that won't be an issue. Anyway, John, not as complex a news story as the one we opened with, but still an interesting and important one in this simultaneously shrinking and expanding gambling world. Any thoughts on the deal and is online casino the key factor in these DFS giants finally becoming profitable at some point? Well, yeah, I can tell you the golden nugget finally will be able to take bets on Rockets games as oh, a result okay. of the Rock the Rockets owners are going to have less of an ownership stake. So hmm. um, he's going to be avoiding that. You know, I go back a few years to the Trenton State House where I was asking powerful state Senate President uh, Stephen Sweeney uh, why he was pushing to not allow betting on any NBA games with Golden Nugget. You know, I didn't sense any ulterior motive. And ultimately, the compromise of only banning Rockets game betting wasn't a big enough deal to gripe about. So everybody kind of lived with it. But it was a little bit silly. And that that's going uh, by the wayside now. You know, I think it was one of the uh, DraftKings executives mentioning that Amazon used to just be about selling books online and right. look what they've become. And that's where <laughs> DraftKings is headed to in, in their mind. And I think they're right. Um, I think any form of legal gambling now is fair game for them. And yes, they might actually finally turn a profit with online casino. Uh, judging from the amount of ads I get every day from multiple companies, you know, 
absolutely begging me to go to the Ron Lack Casino, which I continue to ignore, but uh, but they're going for it and they're going to get it, I think, uh, for a lot of people. Uh, that's a good line, though, you had about the industry both expanding and shrinking. You know, the bigger it gets, the fewer the players. Yep. Damn, everybody gets rich except chumps like us who just cover it. You know, we, we never lose, but we never win. <laughs> well, speak for yourselves. I uh, do. I do uh, cave to those online casino ads sometimes. Okay. And, uh, you know, I've uh, occasionally won. But uh, in the long run, uh, no, you can't win at that stuff, which really leads me to the key story here is which is that uh, online casino gaming is the answer for DraftKings and for yeah. every other online gambling operator. Um, you know, poker might make them a little money. Sports betting might make them a little money, but online casino, that's the closest you'll come to running a state lottery and, and taking advantage of people who are willing to play a game they flat out cannot win in the long run. Every <laughs> casino game is designed to pay out a couple of percentage points less than it takes in. If you play a million $1 hands of blackjack, and you make all the optimal decisions, you will finish somewhere right around $20,000 down. And uh, online, they don't have to pay dealers, you know, except in the live dealer versions of table games. They just sit back and let the apps collect the money. Uh, and, you know, for some people who like to play, it's worth the entertainment. Yeah, hey, I might lose $100 tonight, but I'll get to play for an hour or two. I'll have some fun. If that's your thing, I'm, I'm not knocking it to each their own. But um, for the operators, yeah, th this is the road to riches for DraftKings, FanDuel, and everybody else. And, and I don't think they were even remotely thinking of this a decade ago when their DFS sites were getting off the ground, but now they've found themselves with this opportunity and they're making their big moves. Well, they've both done a tremendous job on figuring out uh, where the money is. There's something called NFTs that I think DraftKings involved with. And <laughs> I have no idea what that is other than it's like, it's kind of like uh, Bitcoin, but only more obscure somehow. <laughs> Uh, sort of somewhere in between Bitcoin and trading <laughs> cards. But uh, I'll, I'll say this, uh, we'll get in a, a plug for one of our colleagues here. Read uh, uh, Jeff Edelstein's little running diary uh, that went up Thursday morning on US Bets about his pursuit of the new DraftKings marketplace, Tom Brady NFTs that went up on Wednesday. It's a, it's a fun read, even if you don't totally understand what it is that he's trying to buy and sell. Yeah, I have no idea what he's trying to buy and sell, so I should probably read it and get a little educated. There you go. All right, let's finish the news segment in Florida, where the Seminole Tribe's new gaming compact with the state was deemed approved last Friday when the Department of the Interior took no action to reject the compact, thus effectively approving it. So sports betting is coming to the Sunshine State but legal challenges on the mobile betting front are still expected as nothing has yet really deviated from Daniel Wallach's legal expectations that he discussed on our show and elsewhere after the compact was announced back in May. Uh, on Wednesday, the compact was published, uh, keeping the state's target go live date of October 15th in play. But will that be in person only at Seminole properties? Will there be mobile, but only on tribal land? Or will there be some sort of useful, widely available mobile option? John, what do you think? Has anything at all changed now that the compact has been approved and published and the tribal leaders and politicians behind this are claiming victory? Well, first of all, I'm claiming victory because finally I got a kind of prediction right, which was that the <laughs> Department of the Interior would take no action at all. Right. And uh, yeah, exactly. Sort of deemed approved. Um, governors have that option with a, you veto, you approve, or you just let it kind of slide off into acceptance. And you didn't, you can always go back and say, well, I didn't approve it. It just happened. Yeah. So anyway, so that's good. But also the, the tribal leaders should celebrate victory too, definitely. They have a monopoly on retail casino sports betting, and there's nothing challengeable that I can tell on from that front. So, you know, of course, the bigger jackpot by far in Florida as anywhere as in mobile. I do expect lawsuits and I do, and admittedly I'm not a lawyer, but I do expect an injunction to, to delay mobile past October 15th in Florida. But even if the tribe loses there, they still would remain in a position to negotiate for a big chunk of the mobile landscape. You know, plus South Florida has a massive senior population that already in many cases prefers a social trip to a casino anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, some of my best friends qualify there, actually. <laughs> and if the tribes lose, Floridians still may get mobile betting something sometime in 2022. Uh, too much money out there for everybody to get stuck forever, especially in a state that will already have retail betting. So it's going to be part of the landscape. It's going to be adding a little thing. So I think when retail goes live in mid-October, uh, it's going to 
help the scenario for some lawmakers are kind of reluctant on it, where it's like, look, we're already here in Florida. It's happening. So let's just move on rather than, you know, the the sort of fantasy that, well, if we don't approve it, then nobody will bet in Florida. Well, yeah, the, they're betting in Florida and all 50 states obviously have yeah. been for decades, legally, illegally, it doesn't matter. Um, but for many lawmakers, the reality of retail betting, I think will sort of help get them over the top to where they do want to work something out that mobile. That's why I say sometime in 22. 2022, I think, for mobile in Florida. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I should note that this compact brings craps and roulette to tribal casinos, uh, and there are no legal challenges awaiting that. So yep. tying into our last story, that probably matters a lot more to the Seminoles than any of the sports betting stuff. Um, but uh, specifically on the mobile sports betting, uh, I was checking out our friend, Mr. Wallach's uh, Twitter feed. He continues to insist a court injunction will shut this down. I see no reason not to believe him. Um, so this is kind of a case of a news story that isn't really news. Nothing has changed, uh, even though since last week, the compact has been approved and pub published. So sorry to our friends in Florida, those who uh, who aren't into the going to the casino and the social aspect and all that, who want to be able to just bet on games from their couches. Uh, if you're looking to do that on the Dolphins or the Bucks, or uh, if you're feeling really frisky, the Jaguars, uh, sorry, I, I don't think it's happening this football season. Uh, that's probably true. Um, cause there could be multiple lawsuits could be, you know, who knows hearings and whatever. So yeah, it's going to be a while, but that's why I'm focusing on 2022 for mobile. Yeah. And I think it's important for Floridians to realize that this will happen. I think probably right on the day, October 15th, um, the casinos, the Seminole tribe casinos will be offering this betting. So, uh, you know, it's, that's something, as I say that, those are heavily populated areas. So it's not like, uh, you know, North Carolina, we used to joke about where right. you got to drive three or four hours to get to a casino. I mean, if you want to do that uh, as part of your, just your weekend, uh, you know, Saturday or Sunday, uh, the casino is not that far away and you can do it. So it's a start. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. Here at Gamble On, we are never shy about celebrating those folks who played roles in the U.S. Supreme Court reversing PASPA. And this week, we welcome back one of those key individuals, although we're mostly going to talk to him not about regulated sports betting, but about horse racing. He is the chairman and CEO of Monmouth Park Racetrack in New Jersey and a 2019 inductee of the Sports Betting Hall of Fame. Dennis Drazen, welcome back to Gamble On. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So, Nobody wants to relive 2020, I realize, but uh, we're going to make you do it a bit anyway. Um, things are mostly back to normal now in the horse racing industry, but I'm curious, what was the toughest part about trying to get through the height of the COVID pandemic last year? And did the pandemic bring about any long lasting changes to the way things are done in horse racing or was it all short term impact in your view? Well, it's a uh difficult question because there are so many aspects to it and you know would take up more time than you have <laughs> okay uh, but i guess the most important thing to me was recognizing that lives were at stake our governor was doing the best job he could to protect lives and the reaction to the pandemic had to be consistent with putting first and foremost you know the risk to life and making sure everyone survived so it was difficult, you know, for us, you know, initially, uh, of course, everything was shut down. Uh, we were, you know, essential here as a law firm. So we stayed open. But over at the track, we were lucky, I guess, that we didn't have our full complement of uh, horses on the backside when things got shut down. And we were able to prepare better than most, I think, because most tracks found themselves in a position where they already had all their employees on the backside. People were coming down with positive cases, but at Mammoth, we were kind of pristine. So we were advised to begin with that we wouldn't be able to start racing until July. And we started bringing in our horsemen and our horses in early May. And we were prepared to you know, test everyone in advance and make sure protocols were in place and make sure that when we brought people into the backside, we weren't bringing in positive cases. And we were strict. We, you know, we got a lot of complaints uh, from 
course have been about not being able to come see their horses. And, you know, we tried to accommodate them by setting up an area on the front side uh, where we were able to let them come see their horses train. But we got through the pandemic with no positive cases on the backside. And we were able to offer a meet that kind of changed. You know, we went into the meet anticipating that we would have no fans able to attend the races. And the governor was very cooperative, you know, sent his team down, examined our large outdoor facility where we could hold 65,000 people outdoors and made accommodations so that we could have 4,000 fans. So our revenues were better than we initially anticipated. Uh, the horse racing experience throughout the country was such that the pandemic saw with sports shut down. There was a lot more interest in horse racing and we probably you know, had almost double the revenues uh, that we would have anticipated going into the pandemic. So that was good for us. And we were able to get the front side open eventually. And you know, it was tough to survive, but, you know, we met the challenge. We had a regular routine of giving protocols to the state, you know, to continue to operate and getting the Commission of Health to sign off on them. So we found that the government was very cooperative, that they took this seriously. And I could complain about other things, but I don't know that it's really worth uh, talking about those things. For example, you know, when you start looking at racetracks versus casinos and you see if they have, you know, the capacity to have 2000 people in a casino and they're letting us have 68 people in our sports book, you know, you could draw comparisons of why, uh, but better to get along and move forward. And, you know, we rose to the challenge of keeping our business going during hard times. So I was pleased overall with our response to the pandemic and my team at Monmouth Park, uh, starting with Bill Anderson, who's the general manager, you know, on to John Himes, who is the uh, racing secretary, uh, and all the others, you know, that participate there. Uh, Bill Knopf did a great job. I mean, the team really came together and they put this first, our CFO, you know, Jim Jamis was very, capable and you know made sure he guided us through this you know we applied for uh the ppp loan which you know everybody else did also and we were able to get a ppp loan to help us survive uh so you know all in all you know i'm glad 20 is behind us but it was a lot better than it could have been yeah and just one thing that you mentioned there that i'm curious about was when there was very little to bet on in the way of sports. And you said, you know, uh, horse racing betting attracted some new customers, business picked up. Do you feel like the industry ha has held on to some of those customers that you, that new, new horse betters were born in 2020 and, and are sticking around? I do. I mean, given the option of, you know, in the sports book, what was open, people bet on Russian ping pong. Right. So, <laughs> Horse racing was a more attractive option. We found a lot of people crossed over and a lot of those players have stayed with horse racing. And in particular now with fixed odds coming, you know, we're getting a lot of interest from those players to continue to bet on horses. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I want to talk about the uh, recent Haskell, Dennis. Uh, obviously we had a disqualification there, which is uh, very unusual. And uh, I thought that TV broadcast kind of missed an opportunity because uh, I know I have a colleague who was upset that the disqualification at all and um, admittedly not an objective observer, as he said, but um, I, I didn't really address the idea of whether the riding crop limitations uh, in New Jersey might have played a role in, in the uh, race, not necessarily, you know, agreeing with that or disagreeing with that, but just uh, to raise the point, because I'm sure some betters around the country are aware there are restrictions and might have wondered if there was anything uh, to that impacting the race at all. So I wonder if you can explain for people uh, what the jockey whose horse drifted a little bit, what he could or couldn't have done based on the Jersey's rules. Yes. So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the rule provides in New Jersey. So you're allowed to use the whip whenever there's a situation that could present danger or cause injury to either a horse or a jockey. So I'm not, trying to second guess anybody here but you know 
if I were the steward at that point in the race, I, I would have taken the horse down. I spoke to Paco Lopez uh, the next day. Uh, Paco did not feel that the whip rule had any role whatsoever in the race, but I saw that Pratt did say that he feels if he could have hit the horse once, he would have straightened out and the DQ would not have happened. But, you know, in reality, he was able to use the crop should he want to, you know, to straighten out the horse because he was getting into one of those situations where the stewards would have viewed it, in my opinion, as, you know, it was necessary to use it to prevent, you know, the horse from coming over and potential injury. So, you know, the stewards gave him seven days. I see he's accepted uh, the days. He's not going to appeal, at least at this point. That's his position. And he's going to serve those days after Del Mar is over. And, you know, I guess to be fair to him, uh, he probably was saying to himself as the race went on, well, you know, what's the rule let me do? You know, if I go ahead and hit the horse, am I going to have a problem? And, you know, he used his judgment. And, you know, he didn't use the crop, but, you know, I think he could have without getting himself into trouble. Yeah, I, I guess the follow up is uh, there were a lot of fears that there would be more injuries and more uh, more of these uh, incidents based on the, the, the reluctance of the jockeys maybe to, to take a risk with the crop. So overall, you, you're a couple of months in. Uh, are there any more spills this year than there have been in previous years? Or No, but, you know, I think what's happened is this, you know. The Jockeys Guild initially, whether they agree or disagree, you know, I think they tried to orchestrate a boycott of the meet and that didn't work. And the majority of jockeys save, you know, one or two uh, who I wish well. Uh, Joe Bravo is a great jockey and he's successful in California now. So I wish Joe goodwill. But I think that as the meet went on, you know, we have not had any incidents. And I think one of the problems that I have with it, frankly, is that some jockeys have chosen not to carry a crop whip at all. So if that announcement is made and they're not carrying a whip and they get into trouble, you know, they don't really have a way to get themselves out of trouble. So, you know, I don't really think that's a good idea. But I find that the jockeys, you know, that are riding there, particularly like Ferrer and, uh, Paco Lopez, you know, they've learned to, you know, use the reins a lot more. And, you know, all this is going to be over soon. So I think that when Hissa, you know, takes over, Hissa is going to have a national rule, which I'm looking forward to. I think, you know, it's long overdue to have rules that would be consistent from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I think this whip rule is one of those things. I think a year from now we'll be talking about this and you'll have enacted, you know, the operational part of his will take play. The racing and safety committee will establish a whip rule. I know John Velasquez is on that uh, committee. So, you know, he'll be vocal on behalf of the jockeys and most likely they'll adopt the Kentucky rule, you know, a year from now. And then everybody, you know, will be back to normal in terms of, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but it's not really fair to impose upon a jockey uh, who's in the heat of combat, so to speak, when they're on these horses and their lives are at risk to try and also think about, okay, what's the rule in this state? You know, is it six times, is it nine times? You know, where can I hit the horse? You know, how do I hit the horse? Yeah. Yeah, it's just, you know, we need uniformity. And I'm glad to see that we're moving in that direction in this country. I want to go back to a, a topic that you touched on for just a second a, a few minutes ago. You name-checked uh, the words uh, fixed odds. I want to talk about that because I know it's uh, been a, a bit of a polarizing topic, but now it's uh, officially been signed into law by Governor Murphy. Some in the business prefer paramutual betting. I know you recently told my co-host, John, that this is a, a step in the right direction. Why do you feel that way? And, and do you understand why some of your colleagues are opposed to introducing fixed odds betting? So when you say some of my colleagues are opposed to it, that's not the sentiment that I'm getting. Okay. Uh, so I, I serve, you know, on a national committee, you know, not only on sports betting, but talking about fixed odds. And it's more the uncertainty 
that's a debate. Okay. Uh, what the correct math is, you know, how is this going to affect the paramutual handle? Um, is it something that we're comfortable with, with the takeout? Is the cost of your signal, you know, the right signal for fixed odds? So nobody's really sure what to do. As a concept itself, I think the majority of people, there may be others that disagree, but the majority of people that I've talked to and my colleagues, you know, think fixed odds is something we should do. Look, Australia has 30 million people. They bet 30 billion Australian in terms of their handle. The United States has 300 million people. We bet 10 billion, you know, in handle. So it seems to have worked in other jurisdictions. And I think somebody's got to try. And, you know, I was a leader in the sports betting field. You know, we have the ability to be innovative at Monmouth because the horsemen run the track. They're the permit holder. So management and horsemen are one and the same. And we felt we should try this. So, you know, we're stepping out front. Uh, we can let the rest of the country look at what's going on at Monmouth Park and make judgments about whether we did it right or wrong. They can adapt to whatever examples they see from us. I mean, even our standard bred counterparts here in New Jersey, I've had extensive conversations with Jeff Gorral up at the Meadowlands. They wanna see what happens at Monmouth first before they're willing to take a risk of cannibalizing their signal. So I do think it's a step in the right direction. You know. I'm engaged with the fans at Monmouth Park a lot. And, you know, you guys know horse racing, but a fan comes to Monmouth Park and they bet $2 on a horse and they bet it two to one and they see the odds after the horses break out of the gate, go down to one to two. You know, they're upset. They think something's wrong. They think someone's betting after the gate closes. They don't quite understand the way that the common pools work and that money's coming in at the last minute. So those fans are going to feel much more comfortable that if I bet two to one, I get two to one. So I think it's something that will let fans feel more comfortable, maybe bringing more people out. And I think it will appeal more to the sports bettors, you know, who are crossing over to some extent. But I think no one wants to make a big bet, you know, on a horse that might end up one to five or one to nine. Right. You know, but if they could get their odds yeah. in the morning and, you know, they can get even money. They may bet on that horse. Then on the other part of this, you know, I, I think that fixed odds wagering is something that we're going to have to learn by. It's signed into law, yes. And Governor Murphy signed it last week. And the Division of Gaming Enforcement is working on the regulations. But the structure we have here in New Jersey, I think, will protect horsemen. So there's going to be compensation for your signal. You know, it's not like someone can just take it and not pay you a dime, but we need to be careful. The other thing that I think is important for people to appreciate is that this is win play show. This is not the exotics. So exactas, trifectas, superfectas, you know, and exotic type wagers represent two thirds of our handle. So what we're putting at risk is one third of our handle, which is the win play show. And, you know, we have certain guarantees you know, in place to make sure that we're compensated if there is any cannibalization. So I think it's a good thing overall. And I think that five years from now, the picture that I see is that everybody's going to have a phone. They're going to have an app on the phone that lets them see every type of wager you can make in the world, whether it's horse racing, casino gambling, sports betting, or what have you. Uh, it's going to be, it's on my phone. I can choose what I want to do. I can gamble 24 seven, uh, whether that's a good thing or not, you know, we can debate forever because, you know, problem gambling is always a concern that we have to be mindful about. Uh, but I think it's going to grow the overall wagering in the world. Uh, when you have the ability to you know, have a one-stop shop, have it all on your phone, and then there are also going to be gimmicks where the companies that want to attract customers, you know, the Fandals, the DraftKings of the world that are currently saying, bet with us and we'll match your initial offer. There are going to be ways that they can incentivize people to bet on Monmouth Park or whatever other track makes a deal with them.
because they can offer, uh, you know, bet with us and we'll refund you the bet if you, you know, play second or third, some of the things we're currently doing and make other gimmicks that, you know, make horse racing attractive to people. I mean, when you really talk to people about the sports betting landscape, mm. they probably bet 10% of the handle on tennis. You know, horse racing should be at least where tennis is. And right now it's a blip, you know, so I think we can grow our industry with fixed odds and somebody's got to try. If all of us sit here and debate, is it good? Is it bad? What's the cannibalization? There's never going to be any increase in the handle. There's never going to be innovation. And we need to bring our game horse racing into the modern century. And this, I believe, is a way to do it. Now, one of the problems that could happen is we saw this with exchange wagering. New Jersey was the first to do it, but we weren't able to get the major signals to participate. So if you can't get the major signals to participate, there are going to be problems, but I think they're more receptive to fixed odds than they were to exchange. And I think eventually, you know, through time, we will get some of the major jurisdictions, maybe not all of them, but if it works, I doubt that people are going to say, we're not going to do this just because we're against it. If it's profitable, people will do it. Yeah. Dennis, I want to ask you about, you know, there's so many innovations uh, you've talked about and of yourself and at your track, but uh, a number of years before 2018, when the Supreme Court finally uh, uh, agreed with New Jersey and got rid of the PASPA law that was pretty much giving Nevada a monopoly on sports betting, uh, you already had a sports book, a William Hill sports book with Joe Asher at the track for several years before there were any bets to be made at it, um, which is a pretty good innovation and turned out to be pretty uh, uh, prescient. Um, but now Caesars has taken over the William Hill brand and they're going to be rebranding everything. And I've been, been, been have not been to your track in, in, in a bit. So uh, when people show up there now, do they still see a William Hill sports book? Is it a Caesar sports book? Uh, uh, and if there's no changes yet, when are they coming? So the changes are coming. Uh, look, Joe Asher is a close friend. Uh, Joe and I, you know, started, you know, this fight together uh, in the early days. The first thing that William Hill did, you know, from Monmouth Park was it took a sponsorship of our Haskell where they paid us a million dollars. And we use that to renovate the sports book that you're talking about. So the first sports book, which existed at Monmouth Park was based upon that deal with Joe Asher and Joe is a great guy. And, you know, the thing I miss most about the William Hill brand is Joe Asher. You know, I could pick up a phone and have a conversation and I, I consider Joe a good friend. Uh, but having said that, you know, Caesars has now purchased uh, William Hill. Caesars is a good brand, an excellent brand. They're starting to do a lot of advertising. I watched the Olympics and I saw, you know, a Caesars ad, you know, on consistently through it. So they've got a new concept that they're promoting. But Caesars, you know, at this point, you know, has come to us, I think, during the past week, they've started to, you know, replace the William Hill uh, brand with the Caesars brand. They've made a commitment to us. You know, part of the deal with William Hill was building a new flagship sports book. And so Caesars is committed to spend $15 million to build a new sports book at Monmouth Park in a new location, which will be by our Valley parking lot. Uh, on the clubhouse side where I'm sure you've been. So that will be, you know, overlooking the track and it will be, you know, a flagship for them. So the Caesars brand, you know, will be identified at least in the racetrack venues, you know, with a flagship that we're doing at Monmouth Park that, you know, we started to do these uh, plans with William Hill, but then the pandemic came and you certainly couldn't do construction at that point, but we're trying to finalize finalize those plans now and go forward. Uh, the William Hill brand on the app, you know, is gone, you know, and it's replaced by, by the Caesars brand, you know, but the Caesars rewards are, you know, lucrative for customers. And I think that they'll enjoy being part of the Caesars family. So, 
you know, look, William Hill is a great brand. When, when I first heard the news, I said to myself, look, you know, William Hill has the better sports book brand. You know, they've been around a long time. Caesars has the better casino brand. And in my own mind, I was trying to imagine, you know, what the changes would be and how all this would work. Uh, but I'm behind, you know, Caesars and their takeover of the William Hill brand and what they're doing at Monmouth Park so far has been a smooth transition. Save the fact that Joe Asher, you know, is no longer there. The rest of the team uh, that we worked with before is now part of the Caesars team and they're doing a good job and their spend now on the marketing side is going to be more significant than what was there before. And, you know, it was good before, but I think I'm looking forward to, you know, good days ahead of us, you know, being part of the Caesars family. All right. Certainly a lot of uh, changes afoot, uh, fixed odds coming and uh, the Caesars uh, changeover and, and all that. So uh, certainly best of luck with uh, with all the uh, new innovations and tweaks uh, ahead as you continue to soldier on here in 2021, Dennis. And thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, there's never a dull moment. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Not in New Jersey anyway. Thanks, right. Dennis. <laughs> Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. It was a true up and down week for the bankroll with wins and losses in new bets, a win and loss in leftover Olympics bets, and one big void of a bet. Uh, we'll start with the void. The $310 I risked on Errol Spence to beat Manny Pacquiao goes back into the bankroll as Spence unfortunately has a retinal tear and that fight, which I was eagerly anticipating for betting purposes, is off. Uh, in terms of our older Olympics bets, we lost with the over on gold medals for the U.S. We came up a couple short. Thanks, Simone Biles. Uh, just just kidding, just kidding. You know. uh, that cost us $110, uh, but we won $100 back with the Australian men's basketball team meddling. Uh, as for the new bets, we dropped $100 on Tony Finau's late Sunday collapse. I did a little research because I was curious if Finau has ever won us money, and <laughs> he has on a few occasions. But overall, John, you are minus $372 on wow. Tony Finau bets. So something to think about going forward. Uh, my boxing bets both won. We won $50 on Conlon Doheny going the distance and $40 on Keyshawn Davis winning his Olympic semifinal match. My baseball bet on the Mariners lost. That cost us $60. And your baseball bet on the Reds won. That earned us $42. So in total, a small loss on the week. We lost $38, putting us $1,030 in the hole. We did reduce the amount on hold in futures bets for what that's worth. Uh, we're, that's now at $1,337. So we have $7,633 available to bet with this week, and I'm up first, and we're still a couple of weeks away from the U.S. Open, the final tennis grand slam of the year, mm -hmm. but I'm going to get a winner bet in now. This was recommended by our resident tennis expert, Adam Small, and uh, I happen to like it. I agree with his take that the time is right to fade Novak Djokovic. Uh, I faded Nadal as the big favorite this year at the French. Uh, I backed Djokovic as the big favorite at Wimbledon, but it seems Djokovic is losing his focus, wearing down a little, and he's trying to become the first man to complete a calendar year Grand Slam since Rod Laver in 1969. That's a lot of pressure. I don't see him pulling it off, especially not at a minus 118 price. I don't think that's worth it. So Adam recommends the second favorite, Daniil Medvedev. He's plus 500 at most books, but plus 550 at FanDuel. He's 25 years old, has reached two Grand Slam finals, but hasn't won one yet. Both finals were hard courts, uh, Aussie Open this year and U.S. Open in 2019. I think he's worth a shot at that price. And equally importantly, Adam thinks he's worth a shot at that price. And Adam is our boss. Uh, so let's bet $50 to win $275 on Medvedev. All right. Yeah, I'm going to try and shake off that 16th hole snowman by Tony Fino on Oof. Sunday that costs us to bet. Uh, yeah, snowman is an eight, as you can imagine. And those of you who don't play golf and uh, 
the average score on a hole is about four. So yeah, you can't really have an eight from your guy down the stretch there that costs us. So uh, I'm going to go back to the uh, mediocre Wyndham championship this week. And I'm just going to, you know, dip my toes in uh, 80 units at plus 200 on points bet. Yes, I did shop around and find a better deal on criminally underrated South African Charles Schwartzel to place in a top 20. So 80 at plus 200, top 20 for Schwartzel. Okay, uh, so I know the term snowmen uh, from uh, from poker, uh, where uh, you know a, a pair of pocket eights is uh, known as snowmen. So yeah, I guess uh, uh, various people from various walks of life have looked at the number eight and said, yeah, it kind of looks like a snowman. Um, so I'm going to boxing for my second bet. And uh, you know how I mentioned earlier, John, that I did a little research. I checked the spreadsheet to see your Tony Finau history. Uh, well. I took the time for one other research project, uh, my boxing betting history with our bankroll. And it turns out my boxing bets over these last three or so years of doing this are up $1,174. So that tells me two things. Uh, It tells me I really do have an edge over the bookmakers Mm -hmm. on boxing. And it tells me everything else is a leak for us. We, we kind of stink overall at betting everything else. As we now know, we're more than $2,000 down on non-boxing bets. Uh, so let's definitely get a boxing bet in. Yes. Uh, the main event of a Showtime triple header Saturday pits the great but aging Guillermo Rigandio of Cuba against John Riel Casimero of the Philippines. Very competitive fight. I think it could go either way. I'm tempted to take Rigandio as the underdog at plus 170 or to win a decision at plus 250 or even Casimero by decision at a big plus 450 payout. That's intriguing. But instead, I think the best bet is just on the fight to go the distance and not worry about who wins. I think it's slightly more likely to go the distance than not. Casimero is a big puncher, but Rigo is one crafty veteran, even at age 40. I don't think he'll be easy to stop. I think the fight is more likely to go all 12 rounds than not, but DraftKings disagrees with a plus 110 price on it going the distance. So uh, I, I would think, you know, I would think it should be more like minus 110, not plus 110. So a little value there. Let's bet $100 to win 110. All right. And I'm going to try a baseball bet again. We're going to be bullies kicking sand in the faces of those hapless pirates that we bet the under on and right. who are cooperating of late. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go 50 at minus 130, Cardinals over Pirates on Thursday. Uh, we've got mediocre LeBlanc against hapless Brubaker, and I think that's enough to get us through. And I did win this one last week, so maybe yes, I'll did. get two in a row. All right. And that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks, everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Dennis Drazen. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, it's finally Field of Dreams night on Thursday. Yankees versus White Sox in Iowa. The game starts at 7 p.m. Eastern time. But Fox goes on air about an hour earlier, and I would recommend that, too. You know, I did a closing about this movie at the start of the season, and now there's the ball game with it. Uh, Recommendations the same, though. Settle in. Let your cynicism and everything else go. Just buy into it. You know, come to watch a ball game in Iowa for reasons you can't even fathom. Now, of course, we won't mind if you look around. You'll spend the time without even thinking about it. For it's time you may have and peace you may lack. I mean, America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers, been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt, then erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, it's part of our past, reminds us of all it was once good and could be again. So people will definitely watch, and so should you. And if you want to gamble responsibly on the over-under and how many times the broadcast team says either he will come or they will come, please do so responsibly. <laughs> but that uh, kidding aside, is this the game you really want to gamble on? Uh, even if you've seen the movie, you know the background? Yeah, I'm going to say no. Black sucks and all that. But anyway, with that, until next time, everybody, gamble on. Gamble on.